The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning, we're continuing on uh, in our studies, uh, looking at the Apostles' Creed. Uh, A couple of things you may have noticed uh, today as you've been around. Matt Scott isn't here this morning, our uh, pastor of worship and the arts. He and Kristen have closed and gotten to see you on their first home in their marriage, and so they're moving into that this uh, weekend. So pray for them and all those uh, transitions, uh, and as you uh, see them, encourage them in home ownership of all the joy and the fun uh, that it is to be in debt for the next 30 years uh, of your life. But no, just a great time for them. I drove by there yesterday and didn't stop, but just was fun to see them moving boxes in and the enjoyment that they have. So he's going to be gone for a few days, uh, transitioning in. Uh, Jeff Peters, our uh, business administrator, who is the glue of a lot of what goes on around here, he and his family uh, are on vacation this week. They're enjoying some time down in Cuba. And so our hope is that they'll return uh, and uh, be back with us, but they're enjoying Uh, some time around. And uh, so if you need anything this week, it's me and Andrew and Tim and Janice who are here. Um, And so uh, we'll we'll do the best we can uh, in following up. We've been studying through the Apostles' Creed. And as we've said within the Creed, and I'm not going to spend much time on this, we've said it week uh, to week, that we aren't per se using the Creed to guide us, but we're allowing the Creed to point to that which is our true guide for life, our rule of faith, uh, and that is God's Word. And so as we've come to the Creed, we've recognized the Creed uh, that it is a man-developed document that it came about in the first centuries of the church to help the church in teaching of saying, well, what do you believe? And instead of bringing out all the books of the Bible and trying to explain all of the theology of biblical theology and systematic theology and all of that, they were able to bring it down and say, well, this is what we believe. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, that was bringing it down to help teach and to explain to people. It was helped, uh, help within the early church and in the church uh, along the way uh, of spiritual formation within the church, of understanding, uh, of saying, I believe, just those two words, personal, I. This has a personal thing to me that I believe this, not I know this, but I uh, not only know it, but I believe it. I'm making this allegiance, and I'm saying this is what I believe. This is what shapes my life. I believe in God the Father. Ah, pause just there in those words, uh, that God in all of his power, uh, the creator God of all things, uh, was also my father. And if he's my father, then he's the father of all believers. That means you then are my brothers and sisters. And so, oh, it shapes, it forms me uh, in my spiritual understandings. And so we're coming to the creed and, and learning those things. And we're saying of the creed uh, that it helps us to, to gain a balance or symmetry within our life. It helps to clarify some things that maybe we are confused about. Uh, it is used to help define our community. What are the communal, moral, uh, and theological norms that we hold together within this family? Within our family, we have certain values that we say, this is a value of our family. It may or may not be a value of our neighbor, but it is a value of the McCutcheon family, and it shapes and drives how we live the same way within the community of faith, the family of God. So we say, these are the things that we believe, and it helps shape and form uh, our church family family, and community, and then finally to give us counsel, that we counsel our own hearts, that maybe there are days that you've forgotten that God is your Father. 
You recognize him as king, maybe you recognize him as judge. You would say that he's creator, but you've forgotten father. And so you need to come back to not only God's word, but the creed helps to point you to that. I believe in God the father. Oh, he's my father. He is my dad. And we counsel our own hearts, or you use the creed to help counsel others. So that's why we come uh, to the creed. And so this morning, we are going to be looking particularly uh, at the section in the middle of the creed where it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, who descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. An area of confusion, at least the first part of that, uh, for many folks. So I hope to explain that today and then to encourage you in what it means that Christ uh, here, even early from Easter, uh, it says we look and say that he was raised from the dead. So let's stand together as we do each week. And on the screen, you'll see uh, the creed uh, there for you. And so let me ask simply, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. But we've said that we don't want the creed to be what we teach. We want the scripture to be what we teach. And so the creed comes from that. And so when we're on this little section uh, this morning uh, saying, he descended into hell and on the third day he rose again from the dead. That's where we are. And for many of you, you come from church backgrounds that maybe exclude that little statement that he descended into hell. Or by, by conscience, you don't say it. I know that I have... Uh, Some that I know who just at that part of the creed, when it's read, they just are silent. There's confusion and there's disagreement within the church uh, over that part of the creed. And I want to just bring a little bit of clarity to you this morning in that statement of what it was intended to mean or to the implications of it, but not spending a great amount of time there, but really moving on to the more paramount statement that we're looking at, that on the third day he rose again from the dead. What are the implications uh, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ within our lives And so we're going to go to the scriptures and look, again, at a similar passage from where we looked last week. Uh, We were in Mark last week, and this week we're going to be looking at Matthew's gospel, uh, picking up, I'm going to pick up in verse 45 and read then into, uh, excuse me, verse 45 of chapter 27 uh, and reading into chapter 28 into verse 10. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. It will be on the screen there for you. But this is the word of the Lord. Let's ask God's blessing upon it. Let's pray. Father, we come now. We humble ourselves under your word. We recognize its divine authority over our lives. This isn't a man-made document, but it is your very word breathed into and through men to write down and held now for us after all of these years. Father, we're amazed that you would condescend yourself to speak to us and to make it known to us who you are and how it is that we are to relate to you through Christ. 
So, Father, we thank you for your word. Send your spirit now to teach us, we pray, for your children. Listen. Amen. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place they were filled with awe and said, that Truly, this was the Son of God. And there were also women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph, the mother and the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there was a rich man of, from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Jesus took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the, mother, uh, of, and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and that the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. As for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. So, this morning as we come to this text, we're going to look uh, really at two things. The significance of the statement of Jesus uh, experiencing hell, 
And then the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. So first, with that statement from the creed uh, that comes uh, as a latter addition in the creed, it was developed and added in in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. It wasn't part of the original uh, creed that was written. And so for many people, it's, it's a later add-on that they haven't included. I think it, in the creed, the early church fathers included it for a purpose. And that purpose was to really to, to drive home the fact that Jesus experienced death. That he was fully man and in that experienced death as we would experience death. And in that way uh, experienced even the separation of soul and body. Uh, that his body was in the tomb, that, but he experienced death as we would. And so as we talk about that, let me first say a few things that it doesn't mean. A few things that this phrase uh, does not mean. It, it cannot mean, as some would say, a, a harrowing of hell. A, a very popular medieval view uh, that Jesus went back into the place of the dead, into Sheol, into Hades... Uh, and that the captive souls of the Old Testament saints were there and were held in prison. And many would go to First Peter chapter 3, looking at verses 18 to 22, and say that's what that passage means. But in actuality, that isn't what that passage is talking about. That Christ didn't go back and release souls that were held kind of in a holding tank until he came uh, to heaven. Also, it doesn't mean uh, a more popular view and version today uh, that I would simply call the word of faith view, uh, that within more modern circles, uh, looking at some of the TV broadcasts, uh, maybe on Trinity Broadcast Network and others, uh, that the men of Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland uh, would say this, uh, that Jesus did not pay for your sins on the cross, he paid for your sins in hell that his work on the cross didn't fully satisfy God's justice, that he had to go experience hell physically to take you then to heaven. Now, let me say this uh, about Mr. Copeland and Mr. Hagen. They are the only two people in all of Christian history to ever say this view. But the scary thing is, because they have the media today, thousands of people believe them. There's no biblical warrant for this view. Because what it does is it diminishes the work of the cross. It says the cross was not sufficient to take care of the punishment that we deserve, but Christ had to go experience hell on our behalf and actually go into hell physically to suffer there and then to be raised. And so it was more his going to hell than it is uh, his being on the cross that saves us. But again, a view that I would say this passage doesn't mean. Another view that it doesn't mean, uh, that this passage doesn't mean, is a second chance view. That some believe that Christ, when he died, and we would say in the creed, he descended into hell, went and preached the gospel to those who were imprisoned. That he went to preach the gospel as a second chance for those that in death got to hear the gospel message again, were able to place their faith in Christ even after death. But that goes directly contrary to what scripture says. Here's a little little thing for you to know. When you're studying Scripture, allow the very clear parts of Scripture to interpret the not-so-clear parts of Scripture. How many of you have found parts of Scripture that weren't so clear? What you do then is you study that and you go, I'm not sure what this means, but I can say what it doesn't mean. 
And that's what you do here when you come to 1 Peter. And you look at some of those, you go, I'm not sure exactly what it means, but I can tell you this. Man doesn't get a second chance because I read in James uh, that it said it is set for man to die once and then the judgment. That there's only one opportunity for us uh, to hear the gospel. So it can't mean uh, this second hand uh, or second chance uh, view and model. So what then does uh, it mean? Uh, What does it mean? The phrase simply means this. It means that Jesus actually experienced death. It was complete to the point of separation even of his body and of his spirit. The phrase indicates that his spirit departed to the realm of the dead. Uh, Historically, that word was Hades. Uh, The word was then later uh, came into the English as hell, but different from what we would, we were just, we're saying here that he experienced death, that he went in and to the place of death. So here's what it means simply. Jesus really died. That we experience in death the separation of soul and body, of spirit and body. And if you look at the context of this clause within the creed, it makes perfect sense that he was crucified, that he was dead, that he was buried, that he descended into Hades, that he descended into the place of the dead. The creed is trying to drive home the reality of the death of Christ, that he was actually dead. Do you kind of see what it's trying to say? The interesting thing is why would it say that? Well, there were many who opposed that view, uh, many who would say that maybe he didn't really die. He swooned on the cross, uh, that he was close to death, but he didn't really die. And his disciples took him down. They put him in the tomb. And after a couple of days of a little R&R in the tomb, uh, he resuscitated, came out of his swooning. He was alive. They took him away. They hid him. Uh, and then he came back to full health. The reality is The creed is hammering home the truth that he really died. You see, in Christian history, there have been some uh, who would say, like I said, that he hadn't died, that he was uh, just sort of dead. But the creed points out that Jesus experienced death in every sense of the word, that Jesus really died in every aspect of what it means to die, including the experience of separation of the body and of of the spirit Within our church, we use the Westminster Confession of Faith as a document that helps us understand our theology. There's a catechism or a questioning that comes along with that. And in the larger catechism, question, 50, question number 50, it asks this question. Wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? And the answer is Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death until the third day which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. So that's what it means, that he truly and actually died. Let me give you a freedom of conscience moment. If you're still not comfortable saying those words, it's okay, right? Why is it okay? Because it's a human document. Because there's there's confusion over it. It's not an essential piece there. What is essential is that you believe that Jesus Christ died. He truly and actually died, that he was buried in the tomb, that there was a separation, if it were, of body and soul, that his spirit, he said, was with the Father immediately. For when he looked at the thief, what did he say to the thief? You go on to the Father, I've got some work to do in hell, and I'll catch up to you in a couple of days. No, he said, you will be with me in paradise today. 
now, immediately, you're going to be with me in paradise. So his spirit was with the Father. His body was still in the grave. The first day on Friday, in the grave where he was buried. The second day, Saturday, uh, that he was the Sabbath day, in the grave. The third day, Sunday, the first day of the Jewish week, was raised from the dead. So the three days that his body was in the tomb. But then it says we believe that on the third day, that first day of the week, that's why, by the way, Christians celebrate Sunday as our Lord's Day. That it was the day of the resurrection. Within the Jewish calendar, uh, it was Saturday was the Sabbath day. But with Christendom, we now gather together on the first day of the week. For many of us, we think, oh, the first day of the week is Monday. But within Christendom, uh, it's Sunday is the first day of the week. And so now we have to ask, what's the significance of Jesus' resurrection? What does it matter uh, whether or not he rose from the dead? What would it matter if archaeologists went and they were searching uh, within Jerusalem and they found the tomb that was supposedly Jesus' tomb and they found bones in that tomb and they brought them out and said, these are the, t- the bones of Jesus of Nazareth. Would it matter? Would it matter? At some point, somebody's going to do that. Somebody's going to say, hey, I found Jesus' bones But here's what we know about Jesus' resurrection. It was a historic fact. Folks would say that it's a theory. Folks would say you can't prove it. But if you go back to the early writings, uh, the writings that took place just years after uh, this incident, the writers write in a way that's legal. Uh, They write in a way that says, don't just take my word for it. I'm an eyewitness. Yes, I saw Jesus. I touched him. I was with him. I ate with him. Uh, I saw him. But take the witness accounts of even those who were upwards of 500 who gathered with him, and many of them are still alive. Have you ever done that in your world today? You say something to somebody, you say, I I saw this happen. They're like, oh, come on. Like, no, really, I saw it. And they're like, really? Well, you don't have to take my word for it. You can talk to 400 other people who saw the same thing with me. What are they doing? You are proving the historicity of the event that you saw. And that's what the writers of the New Testament are saying as well. Listen to the words of John, the beloved, uh, the pastor who lived into uh, the latter part of the first century before dying on the island of Patmos. He wrote these words in 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, and we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, and we are writing these things, that your joy may be complete. Or Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15, the first 11 verses, says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, Unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. Then to the twelve apostles. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive. He's basically saying, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. Most of those 500 are still alive somewhere around in the Jerusalem area or in the dispersion. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that is the brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder. And so he goes on to basically say this, folks, there's an empty tomb. There was a linen shroud left in it, but that's not the important part. The important part is there was no body, that Christ was resurrected from the dead. And that during the 40 days in which he lived upon the earth after that and walked and was with people, uh, that there are witnesses who saw him there. And that the apostles were ready to lay down their lives for the resurrected cross. Think about it. They weren't laying down their lives for a swooning theory. That they weren't going to lay down their lives and be tortured and all of them to be ultimately be killed for a Jesus who was beaten up really badly but then came back to life. Why would they do? Or for another theory of the theft theory that someone stole his body, uh, that he did die but he was never resurrected so they stole his body but they weren't going to stand for something that really didn't happen. Or a theory that took, uh, has taken on since Freud's time that the women were just confused. They went to the tomb, they asked the gardener, the gardener said, who are you looking for? Oh, he's over there, and they went to the wrong there. They went to the wrong tomb, and they so wanted to believe it to be true that it was true for them, and so there's this belief that the women were confused, and if they just wanted it to be true, it had to be true. Very few people are willing to die for this, but there is a historicity of the fact that these things happened, and there are witnesses. So when you talk to folks, You don't have to say that it's a theory that Jesus was raised from the dead, but there's credible legal evidence that it happened. Does that make sense? That's actually good news. I was trying to explain to somebody something that happened in my backyard the other day. We're sitting in our backyard around the fire pit, and Osprey was sitting up in the tree over us. It had a big fish. It was about to have a snack, and all of a sudden, the Osprey started looking around like something was coming. We looked up, and a bald eagle came swooping down over our house, went up into the tree. The Osprey took off. The bald eagle started circling around. It dove down into our backyard, up and over, and we watched her for about five minutes. And I told somebody that, like, that's not true. I was like, it was true. It was so cool. This massive bald eagle circling and doing all of that. And they were like, oh, come on. And I said, well, Lisa was with me. Talk to her. And here's what they said. Oh, well, if Lisa saw it. <laughs> like, okay, there's my integrity impugned, but that's all right. I had a witness. That's what Paul, that's what John, that's what all the apostles, that's what the church is built on. Not a theory, folks, but there is historic evidence about these truths. And people saw it and people affirmed it. There's even historic fact of the darkening of the, of the sun in the middle of the day. Even pagan accounts go back to that time in that year and say on that day within the calendar, uh, there was an eclipse, a sense of which all, it couldn't have happened in midday, but it did. And there was a darkening of the world in that day. Isn't that amazing? That history corroborates what we know to be true. So first, The significance of Jesus' resurrection is it confirms the historicity of Christianity. Jesus' resurrection affirms that he is the Christ, the Savior of sinners. Revelation 1, verses 12 to 18. Then I turned, this is John, 
to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he had seven stars from his mouth. It came as a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I ran up to him and gave him a high five and said, That's awesome. You're so cool. He said, I fell on my, off of my feet. As if dead. The glorified, resurrected Christ in all of his glory. It brought John to a place of saying, oh my goodness, I'm undone. And then he heard this voice. He laid his hand upon me. And he said, fear not, I am the first and I am the last. The living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. What Jesus is saying to John and what he's saying to us is, because I died, but more importantly, because I am resurrected from the dead, it validates my claims, it validates my deity, and it validates everything that I've said to be true. Folks, that's the reality. Here it is. Let me give it for you. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, if Jesus Christ did not resurrect from the dead, then disregard everything that I'm saying. But if he did resurrect from the dead, then you have to take into account everything that he said. Believer, that's true to you as well. This isn't some little person that we're trifling with. This is the God of the universe, the God-man Jesus, who said to John, I died. But more than that, I am alive and I've conquered death and I now stand in my glory in front of you. And everything that I've ever said to you is true. Deal with it. That's awesome, isn't it? That he's saying, I am the king. I I am the king. And you have to recognize me as such because I've done something that no one else has ever done. I went into the tomb. I went into Hades itself. And I came out on my own accord. By my father's power, I overcame the tomb that I am truly the Son of Man. I am God himself. And everything that I've said, because he promised, remember he said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be resurrected. Now, because that actually happened, everything else that he said, you can put your faith and trust in. What are quickly some of the things that he said? He said this, if you believe in me, you'll have the forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of Jesus validates his statement that you can find forgiveness for your sins in him. Jesus' resurrection from the dead validates his statement That if you believe in me, you will be adopted as sons uh, of God. That you will be my brothers and sisters. You will have that. You will have my very presence with you always, even until the end of the age. There will be victory for you over sin and death. There will be life given to you in this way. That I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. And I can say that based on the authority of who I am and based on the validity and the reality of my resurrection. That all of my moral teaching is true. And that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. For I'm the one in that picture with, in Revelation, I'm the one who holds the seals. Jesus says that my resurrection affirms who I am. 
the Savior of sinners. And then the final thing, uh, the importance of the resurrection, is it not only shows its historicity and the historicity of Christianity, it not only affirms that he is the Christ who he said that he was, but Jesus' resurrection gives us a picture of our hope. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because he testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did did not raise, if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die also in Christ now, all are made uh, alive. You see what's happening. He is the conquering king who vanquished death and sin on your behalf. I read a wonderful book about philosophy by the head of the School of Philosophy at Paris University. And he said that all of philosophy is trying to answer this one question. It's the question of death. What do we do with death? What do we do with with this finality, with this reality? Because guess what every single one of us has in common, unless Christ comes back before then? Guess what all of us have in common? We all are going to die that this body is in decay, uh, that we are going to experience death. But here's the hope that is given to the believer. Because of Christ, it redefines your death. Isn't that great news? You don't have to be afraid to die. You don't have to be afraid that when you close your eyes uh, in this life, that when you open them, you open them in the very presence of Christ. It gives you a hope for your loved ones. You've lost those whom you love dearly. And for those who are in Christ, here's good news for you. You get to see them again. Isn't that awesome news? And it says to you, someone who's suffering and facing death, and there are some even in our own church who are facing death, that you can come to them and you can say this, let me encourage you that I know someone who conquered death. And if you have your your trust in him, then you don't have to die Even though in this life you die, you live forever with him. You see, we have a hope that is secured in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that the power of that resurrection lives within us. There's an old hymn that goes something, an old song that goes something like this. He lives, he lives Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? Remember the last part? He lives within my heart. I would say, well, that's sort of true. You ask me how I know he lives? I know he lives because there's an empty tomb. I know he lives because there were hundreds of witnesses. I know he lives because he conquered the dead and he resurrected from death itself that he has ascended and seated at the right hand. I know he lives because the scriptures prove it and history proves it out, not just the reality of my faith, but the reality outside of that, that it's true, that I place my very hope and my life on it. And I'll ask you this in closing. If you're not placing your hope in your life upon the realities of what Christ is presenting, 
what are you placing your hope on? Put them to the same test that we put this to today. Put it to the test. Will it give to you that which it promises to give? Does it have the power and authority to do it? And if it doesn't, then shuck it to the side and bring your allegiance here and say, I believe in this to be true, and I will stake my very life on it. I invite the team to come on up, and as they come up, read these words of Job. Job had suffered so much, but Job came and he said these words, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. What an awesome truth. Job, even in the midst of all of his suffering, the reality of a resurrected Christ coming one day for him said, I can endure all things, for I know that I will see my Redeemer live. Folks, I hope you see your Redeemer today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word Thank you for the truth and the fact that Christ died, yes, but that he was raised from the dead and he is seated with you at the heavenly and and the heaven itself and that we will see him one day and that he will redeem our flesh, he will redeem our bodies and, and that we will be raised one day with him. Father, for those who are questioning their faith, questioning what they believe, I pray that they would, they would study the scripture and they would see it to be true that they would see and hear the testimony of your church and they would come to believe. Father, we praise you and we recognize that all we have truly is Christ. To him be the glory. Amen. Let's stand.